For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Romans 3. I entitled this, Our Problem, God's Solution. And I think it would be worthwhile for us to talk a little bit about the content of this passage because I think the first part of it seems extremely negative. And I know today in our culture, like one of the worst things that you can do is create in somebody guilt feelings or make them feel shame. And I think that when we, you know, come face to face with the Bible, sometimes God has things to say to us that we don't like, that produce in us feelings of guilt that are actually rooted in true moral guilt. But he does this because he understands that our problem needs to be exposed. And that if we don't come to a realization of our problem, then we'll never really arrive at the solution he provided. So let's talk first of all about our problem. We're going to start in verse 9. Paul says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. We argued over the last few weeks that really it doesn't matter whether or not you are a Jewish person, one of God's people, or whether or not you're a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, that we all fall short of God's standard. And Paul advances his argument here and sort of gives us the good news. But he also uh, lays out some bad stuff first to kind of uh, impress this upon us. He says in verse 10 through 12, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So Paul quotes all of these Old Testament passages to demonstrate that we have a problem, that we are born fallen, that we are morally corrupt, that our sense of what's right and wrong has been actually warped due to sin. And he declares that um, there is no one who's righteous. Now I think that even though we might have a more positive perspective about human beings, I think all of us sense that things are not the way they ought to be. That throughout history and across all cultures, there have been individuals, people who have committed acts of evil. And really, if you study history, history is filled with many different instances of humans taking what God has given them their intellect, their creativity, and have used it for extreme acts of evil. The famous theologian Reinhold Niebuhr says, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. The only one that we can actually observe that's very difficult to deny. Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And yet, I think, again, This grates against what our culture would say. I think if you ask the the average person, do you think that you're a good person? I think most people would say, in general, yeah. 
I've got my flaws, but I think overall, I'm a pretty good person, right? And I think if that person believed in God, maybe even believed in an afterlife, if you ask them, so do you think that based on your good works that, you know, God would accept you? They'd say, you know, I try to live a good life. I try to avoid hurting people, doing bad things. So I hope so. And yet the Bible's response to that is there is no one who is righteous, not even one. And we're not talking about, you know, self-righteousness. We're talking about a right standing before God. Well, I think this is kind of hard for us to really think about, in part because we're so acquainted with our own problems. I mean, we've had these problems pretty much since birth. And, you know, as a parent, I know that when I see my two-year-old blatantly lie to me, did you, did you take that? No. And I know he's lying. I think to myself, wait, I, I didn't train him how to lie, right? I didn't say, hey, if you're in this kind of situation and you feel embarrassed, you should just not tell the truth. There was no instruction necessary. It's almost like this tendency was, was hardwired into him and hardwired into all of us. It's almost like at birth, we were pre-programmed with this, this problem. And I think, you know, because we're so used to our problem, it's sometimes difficult to really see that God, who is morally perfect in his character, stands way above us. That he looks at us maybe from a different perspective. A number of years ago, my home church actually started to um, reach out to a large number of punk rock kids. And one of the things that you will learn about punk rock kids is that um, they have hygiene problems, right? <laughs> and so this guy who was really growing in his faith, he moved into a ministry house with me. We affectionately nicknamed him Pickle. And... Um, <laughs> He, I mean, his, his body odor and his feet were so bad that if you sat next to him, your eyes would water because it was like you were smelling ammonia. And so you'd be sitting there and, you know, I think for almost an entire three months, he slept on the same couch in our living room. And one of our roommates actually ended up sleeping on that couch and then got pink eye three different times. You know, I've never had the courage to actually ask him this, but, you know, if I sat down and, and, and said to him, dude, have you ever noticed that smell? <laughs> He'd be like, what smell, right? I think we're sort of in the same boat. Like, a lot of times, we're so used to our problems. We're so inundated with sin, and the sin around us, the world that we live in, that it's sometimes difficult for us to gauge what's really right and wrong. And a lot of times what we're doing is we're comparing ourselves to other people who we deem to be worse than us as a point of comparison to justify our own goodness. But I think it's helpful for us maybe to think and sort of visualize this. I like to think about things visually. So, I created what you might call a goodness graph, okay? 
So imagine there was a goodness graph in the universe. And let's say that scale zero to 900 represented your points of goodness, whatever that is. So, you know, on the top end of this, probably somewhere in the 900 range, you got, you know, Mother Teresa. Great woman, sacrificed her life for these, these children in India who are very poor. I mean, she, I don't know if she's a saint at this point, but I mean, she was an incredibly loving, good woman. On the opposite end, you know, you think of somebody who is infamous in history and immediately your mind is drawn to somebody like Adolf Hitler, right? Who exterminated millions of Jewish people. So you have two extreme ends and then you start thinking about yourself. You know, where would you fall on this goodness graph? You'd be like, okay, I'm not as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm certainly nowhere near Adolf Hitler, so I'm probably on the top end of that goodness graph. Let's say I'm 695, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Now, as a point of reference, just to sort of help us in our thinking, you know, let's think of some other individuals and where they would fall on this goodness graph. Somebody like this guy, R. Kelly, right? <laughs> He's not a good man. And then slightly above him, well, probably further above him, you would probably put somebody like Keanu Reeves, right? Maybe the worst actor ever. I don't know if you've ever seen the cover of Speed. There's a careening bus, and it's a, just a picture of his face, expressionless. Think about that. And then, slightly above you would be somebody like Tim Tebow, right? I mean, this dude has a great charity, a great smile, terrible arm, right? That's the only knock on that guy. So, that gives you sort of the full range of where you land on this goodness graph. Now, let's say God said, okay, you are 695 points of goodness, but... At the end of your life, God says, the cutoff was actually 700. You'd be like, well, why, why was it at 700? And God said, well, you know, I permit 2,563,000 2, sins, and you just committed one more, so you didn't really make the cut. You would feel like, that's sort of arbitrary, right? I mean, what, why, why does it have to be that 2 million number? Why, why do I have to be at 700 in order to make the cutoff? You know, if there's a standard out there, how can you be sure that you're actually good enough? Are we going to do that based on comparing ourselves to other people? Well, I think when we, when we look at things maybe from God's perspective, when, when we study what the Bible actually has to say, God actually looks at things from a slightly different perspective. For him, the goodness graph looks something like this, that there's just slight gradients in goodness between us and other people, and that the scale actually changes such that, you know, God, if we could even put him on the goodness graph, would just tower over us in terms of goodness and moral perfection. And so from God's standpoint, even though he sees that 
there are slight variations of goodness between us in comparison to his perfect moral character. We all fall short. We all miss the mark. That's actually what the word sin means in Greek. Hamartia means to miss the mark. And so that's God's standard, whether we like it or not. And that's bad news. That's something that we don't want to have to hear. Paul continues with our problem. He says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and mercy, misery mark their, lie, their ways. In the way of peace, they don't know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So again, he's just going through this list of Old Testament passages to make his argument that all of us are born with this corrupted nature. And if you look at it, it's really interesting because he it seems like he points to a variety of different parts of our body. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. Our lips are like poison. Our mouths are full of cursing. Our feet shed blood. And there's no fear of God before our eyes. It's almost like he's, he's trying to show that every aspect of our being has been corrupted. And really, when you think about sin, it sort of acts like a virus that infects really the fabric of our being, that it it warps and robs us of our humanity. It takes what's good and actually corrupts it. And that means, you know, our reasoning, our emotions, our bodies, our desires, all of those things are warped because of our fallen nature. But again, you're probably sitting here thinking, isn't that kind of negative? I mean, after all, you know, I've seen people commit genuine acts of altruism, of self-sacrifice, people who have risked their lives, have given their lives for the sake of others. And you know, you might say to yourself, I've met actually some non-Christian people who in many ways are as generous, loving, and self-sacrificial as many Christians that I've met in my life. And so how does, how does this picture fit with the picture I see? Well, I, I want to maybe explore this a little bit more so that we can get a, more of a nuanced perspective of this. First of all, we're not saying that non-Christian people are insensitive to matters of conscience. In fact, Paul makes this statement In chapter 2, verse 15, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. In other words, God has pre-programmed each person with this sense of right and wrong. He's given each and every one of us a moral compass. So we all sense that there's something that's right or wrong, whether we agree with that uh, or not. But... As we learn, this sense of morality, these moral emotions that we all go through as human beings are actually a clue of the creator's design, that God actually has imprinted his image onto us. And since God himself is moral, that means that we are moral beings as well. So we're not saying that non-Christian people are insensitive to matters of conscience. Secondly, 
We're not saying that we're as sinful as possible. Um, we're not, you know, we're not saying that we are going to continuously do evil in the worst possible way all the time, right? That's not what we're suggesting. And again, we do see people who sacrifice their lives for others. We do see many non-Christian people who live actually better and more moral lives than many Christians. Some who show moral integrity in the face of opposition. But according to the Bible, that in no way merits salvation. And in no way does it contribute to one's ability to enter eternal life. Also, it doesn't, we're not saying that we will engage in every type of sin imaginable, right? When we talk about our fallen human nature, you know, we're not suggesting that at some point we will find our, ourselves in a hotel room snorting lines of cocaine with a prostitute on the bed, right? I mean, that's not what we're suggesting here. But when we talk about this concept of biblical human fallen nature, what we are saying is that it takes what's good and corrupts it. I mean, we've seen many instances of this in history. History contains many cases where people have taken what God has given, their intellect, their creativity, and have found new ways to kill people. We've seen many cases, even in our own lives, where we have taken our charm, our ability to relate well to people and have used that to manipulate. Or you think about people who use their business savvy and their ability to uh, market themselves in order to steal money from people. And so we, what, what often happens is that we take the good things that God gives to us and then we corrupt it. Also, human fallen nature contaminates even genuine acts of altruism with improper motives. I mean, just a moment's reflection will probably reveal that any act of service you have completed has sort of a tinge of self-centeredness, of egotism, the desire to be recognized. Also, our human fallen nature conceals sinfulness under a thin veneer of charm and graciousness. You know, most people, they act pretty good, including myself, when things are pretty normal. But you put somebody in a situation of duress and you really start to see more of who they are. Um, I know that when you go to like Japan, for example, I've been there, uh, the people there are very mild-mannered, they're very respectful, they're very generous. But there are accounts of these, you know, Japanese internment camps during World War II where space was very limited and these people who were largely, you know, pretty genteel people ended up, you know, fighting over, over small uh, plots within the internment camp. Cases where they would move their, their bed a fraction of an inch every single day over the course of months and invade other people's space. You know, any one of us, if we are put in the right circumstances, will be tempted to violate our conscience, to do what we know is wrong. You know, most of us may consider ourselves a pretty honest and, um, you know, a person who has a lot of integrity, but 
when you know you're in a lot of trouble, there's a desire to minimize what, what you've done wrong. There's that temptation. Millard Erickson, this uh, systematic theologian, says, it's a vivid reminder that what happens in situations of ex exigency may be a better indication of the true condition of the human heart than are the normal circumstances of life. In other words, we may act like we're very civil and loving and tolerant, but put us in a situation where we're under pressure, where we're under duress, and who we really are comes out. Human fallen nature is really a condition that affect, infects all human beings. When we talk about this concept of our human fallenness, we're not talking about the intensiveness of our problem, but the extensiveness of our problem. In other words, every single human being has a problem. That none of us are morally perfect. That we all have flaws. And according to God, that's a major problem, even though we don't see it. <clears throat> also, our human fallen nature means that we're unable to extricate ourselves from our sinful condition. You know, think about it this way. No matter how much self-discipline you apply, no matter how much determination you, you try to muster up, you're never ever going to be able to actually change yourself. I mean, the best that you can really do is like behavior modification. But I've met a lot of people who have struggled with addiction. They've managed to get sober, but they go to their meetings and say, not a day goes by where I don't have a temptation to use again. Is that real freedom from sin? And so really, all of our efforts to try to change ourselves, to transform our lives, it's, it's just like trying to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Paul goes on in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So we understand what he's saying here, that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God, but it's not real clear what he, how he arrives at that. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Remember Paul's audience here. He's speaking to Jewish people who are trying to live this life of self-righteousness where they're doing good things in order to earn God's acceptance. And I'm sure as they were listening, looking at that list of Old Testament passages that talk about people's sinfulness, they were probably thinking in their mind, oh yeah, those are those Gentiles. Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's who needs to hear this. And Paul's saying, actually, we're all under God's judgment. Nobody is, is good. We're all held accountable. You know, take, for example, uh, one of the 613 Old Testament laws. Just one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Try to do that for one day or even one week. Love God continually, maximally, all the time. That'd be super hard. I mean, no, no, nobody with any honesty could say that they could do that for a week. And so that's just one law. And Paul's saying here that none of us live a perfect life. 
And as a result, we all fall under God's judgment. Doesn't matter if you're a Jewish person. Doesn't, doesn't matter if you are a non-Jewish person. <clears throat> the New Testament says this in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. In other words, God demands moral perfection. Otherwise, we fall under his judgment. <clears throat> He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Um, you know, God never intended people to earn salvation through the Old Testament law. That might come as a surprise to you. You know, he didn't give all those laws in the Old Testament so you could work really, really hard to earn his acceptance and his approval. It's, it's actually just the opposite of that. The law sort of resembles a mirror to reflect dimly God's perfect moral character to show us how far we, sh we fall short of it. You know, let's say you're on your, your evening commute from work, right? And you stop at a light and you flip down your visor, look in the mirror, and you notice that right in between your two front teeth is this gigantic piece of cilantro, right? Looks like you just stuffed a bunch in your mouth. And then you think to yourself, wait a second, I had lunch about five hours ago at Chipotle, and I also have this nervous tendency to smile whenever I see people. And so then you realize with embarrassment that you've been walking around the entire day at work smiling at customers with a giant piece of cilantro in your, in your teeth, right? Now, that mirror, it can't really do anything for you, right? That mirror cannot take that piece of cilantro out of your teeth, but it indicates to you the problem that you have. And so likewise, God gave us the law to show us dimly his perfect moral character, but to show us our flaws, to bring us to a place where we will realize, look, there's nothing I can do. I, I can't earn my way to God. So let's turn to God's solution. Look at the rest of the passage. He says in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. A few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about this concept of Old Testament prophecy, how God pre-authenticated the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, through these numerous Old Testament passages. And he did this because he wanted to show us the manner and the mission in which he would come. Because he knew that we would have a lot, of, a lot of questions, that we would be very skeptical. Now, one thing that's really interesting is this concept of how the law predicts Jesus' coming as well. That these rituals that God set out in the Old Testament were actually intended to give us a symbolic picture of what Jesus would ultimately do. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that these Old Testament forms, these rituals, they were merely a shadow of what was to come, but the reality was actually Jesus Christ. I think one of the most stunning examples of this is probably the Day of Atonement. To give you a little bit of background, in the Old Testament, God commanded that the nation of Israel create this tabernacle, which became the temple. And there were two rooms there. There was the holy place where all the priests 
people who came from the tribe of Levi could serve. But then within the inner sanctum, the most holy place, there was this one room, and nobody could go in there. The only person who could go in there was one individual who was chosen by God called the high priest, and he had to come specifically from the line of Levi, but also from the family of Aaron. So God was very specific about the kind of person who could enter there, and even that, the high priest couldn't just waltz into God's presence anytime he wanted because the Ark of the Covenant was in there. He specified that it would have to be on this special day, the Day of Atonement. And just to really reinforce this in a visual way, God said, I want you to construct this really thick curtain, and I want you to put it between the entranceway of the, holy, the most holy place and uh, the holy place to separate it. A couple guys called Nadab and Abihu decided they were going to sort of freestyle worshiping God. And so they decided to walk into the most holy place and they offered what the Old Testament calls strange fire. And immediately the Old Testament says that fire rained down onto the temple and immediately killed those guys. I'm sure that served as an object lesson as the people were watching and the rest of the priests were, were bringing Nadab and Abihu out in a dustpan, right? It, it was a way of really communicating, look, you can't just come into my presence anytime you want. We have a problem. You are imperfect and I'm perfect. And if you are going to come into my presence, it's going to be on my terms and the way that I specify because I'm different from you. And so... Once a year, on this Day of Atonement, God specified, I want you to take two goats. And the high priest in front of the entire assembly of Israel would, would take um, the sins of the people and lay it onto one of the goats and confess the sins of the people. And then he would let that goat go out into the desert. And that's what they called the scapegoat. And that's actually where we get our modern term, scapegoat, from. The second goat, he would take and he would slaughter it, and he would take some of the blood, enter into the most holy place, and offer a sacrifice. If he emerged from the curtain, from the veil, then that indicated to the people that God had accepted their sacrifice. And so this became an incredible picture of what Jesus would do. You know, when you think of this example, I, th I, I imagine myself as a visitor here or as an as a investigator. You might be thinking, why does the Bible seem so obsessed with blood? I mean, God seems like this, you know, primitive, bloodthirsty deity who needs a sacrifice to be appeased. He seems capricious. But one of the things that you have to realize is that God used blood as a symbol of life. You know, when you Go to the grocery store today, all your meat is prepackaged. You're like, oh, this looks great. Love my chicken. It's so clean. Um, but, you know, throughout the world and even in ancient times, I mean, people were used to seeing animals get slaughtered. And people would put two and two together. They'd look at the animal as it's laying there and as the blood is flowing out of its body that its life would leave it as the blood drained out. And so God said... The life is in the blood. And so therefore, there needs to be an innocent life taken for the guilty. 
That's what he was trying to reinforce through this picture. Now, some might say, well, it sounds like God is sort of like committing cosmic child abuse, right? I mean, why would he take out his wrath and anger on his son? You know, he, I think some people portray it as, you know, God is like this angry father who's drunk and, you know, stampeding around the house. And just as he finds his younger son and is about to beat him, you know, his older son steps in the way and basically takes the punishment on behalf of the younger. And yet, one of the things that the Bible teaches is that God the Father and God the Son were working in concert with one another. That it wasn't like Jesus was some sort of helpless victim who, who you know, endured this beating, this punishment. But the Bible teaches that Jesus was on a mission to sacrifice himself for us. He goes on in verse 22 through 25 and says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So he states really the primary message of the Bible. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The reason that Jesus came was to come and die, to sacrifice himself as the innocent victim on behalf of us, the guilty party. And he did this out of love and justice. And the Bible says that all we need to do is merely place our faith into what God has done and that he will give, it, give us salvation freely. It's, it's an incredible message of love and God's salvation. He, Paul uses a bunch of different words to sort of describe this event because the magnitude of it is so big that it's, it's hard to describe even just with one word. He uses this word justified. You know, to be justified means to be made innocent, to, to be given that status. You know, imagine if you were unjustly accused of sexual assault. That'd be pretty bad. It'd be pretty embarrassing. It would be damaging to your reputation. But imagine if you went to court and eyewitnesses identified another individual who they, who they uh, saw coming out of the building. Uh, they did some DNA tests that shows that this is actually the perpetrator, not you. And so at the end of it, the jury finds that you are acquitted of your crime. The next day you come to work and one of your coworkers says, that's so amazing, they found you not guilty. You'd be like, you feel a little bit sensitive about that language. You'd say, no, 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 they didn't find me not guilty. They acquitted me. I'm innocent. And in the same way, God has declared us innocent because of what he has done on the cross, because of the payment that he made through Jesus Christ. He also uses this word redemption, which in Greek is the word apolotrosis. It's actually a commercial term which describes a payment. And in the ancient world, there were like, I don't know, maybe a quarter or a third of the entire Roman Empire were comprised of slaves many of whom were indentured servants. And so one way to get out of your condition 
was that somebody could make a payment on your behalf and, and buy your freedom. And so again, God says, I purchased your freedom through what Jesus has done. Also, he uses this word, sacrifice of atonement, which is the same word that he uses in the Old, the Old Testament, same concept to describe the sacrifice that Jesus made. And he says that all of this was given freely by his grace. Grace is just the unmerited gift of God. That's why, you know, the Bible talks about the good news. I, I don't know if you've ever heard the word gospel. The word gospel just means good news. And the good news is that God doesn't require you to do a bunch of work. He doesn't require you to jump through all of these hoops in order to receive his salvation. He offers it freely to you just by placing your faith in him. He says in verse 25, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so God actually did this to demonstrate his righteousness. God had to figure out a solution that upheld his justice, but also provided mercy for us. And you know, when Jesus suffered on the cross and finally gave up his last breath, the entire universe was watching intently. And they couldn't even imagine that God took on human form and died in the man Jesus Christ for us. For us people. And, you know, I think that it's going to be interesting when those of us who believe enter into our heavenly dwelling. God probably will, will maintain our free will knowing that that experience of being away from him will prevent us from ever turning away from him again. You wonder if we're going to start going on a speaking tour as God creates new creatures and new beings. And we'll be like, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this thought pop into your head. Maybe God is just really demanding. Maybe he's actually a tyrant. Maybe he's not good or loving at all. Let me tell you, don't go that way. We know how all that ended. We can tell you firsthand, God is a loving God. And so we will be trophies of his love and grace. He says in verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be the just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. One of the really beautiful things about the, what Jesus did was that in one act, he demonstrated both his justice and at the same time justified us. I don't know, a few weeks ago when we first started this series, I gave that illustration of the righteous judge. Some of you weren't here, so I'm gonna repeat it again. But, uh, you know, imagine there's this righteous judge and as he opens up his docket, he sees that the next case is vehicular homicide. And as they bring the accused into the courtroom, the judge realizes it's his own son. But the evidence is so overwhelming that it's clear his son was actually guilty. And so there was a buzz in the courtroom as the judge was to make the determination of innocence or guilt. The judge declares guilty as charged. And of course, the entire courtroom erupts. And as people are talking, the judge quiets everybody down and says, and the sentence is death. But instead of my son dying, 
I'll pay the penalty. I will be the one who will die for him. And that gives us a picture of what God did for us. Even though we are guilty, even though we deserve punishment, God took that punishment upon himself out of his love for us. And God predicted that this would happen long ago. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, Isaiah says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Speaking of the suffering servant, that Jesus would come and pay for our wrongdoing. You know, one of the really crazy things is that when Jesus uh, gave up his last breath, Matthew actually tells us in Matthew 27, verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, that picture of separation that the veil represented? God, through that act, was, was miraculously saying, I've opened up a new way to relate. One that doesn't require you coming in feeling shame and guilt because I've taken care of all of that through Jesus Christ. Finally, he says in verse 27, where then is boasting? Is it excluded because of what, of what? The law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. So he says, where's the boasting? How can you boast after you've received grace from God? You know, can you imagine that son as he's standing outside the courtroom and he watches his father being escorted away to be executed and his friend runs up to him. He's like, man, I can't believe what your dad did for you. And the son's saying, you know, I basically deserved it because I was a pretty good kid anyway. You'd be like, what? You, I mean, if, that was, if you were the friend, you'd want to smack him upside the head. Like, what are, you th- what are you talking about? That's crazy. That's arrogant to think that you, because you were so good that your father probably should have done this for you anyway. And in the same way, when we receive God's grace and his mercy, there's no room for boasting. That means the playing field has been leveled. Doesn't matter who you are, what you think you've done, where you think you come from that makes you better than anyone else, you're not. Because we all come under God's grace. He says, finally, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So this really is the bottom line. You know, if you're here and you have been striving to be good enough to avoid doing bad things so that you could please God, that's a failed project. You're done. God says you you need to be utterly perfect in order to attain salvation. So it doesn't matter if you you decide from here on out, I'm going to be a good person. From God's standpoint, that doesn't matter. We all fall short of the glory of God. But instead, God offers us this other alternative, which is that we can place our faith in God's free gift, which he purchased through Jesus. God wants you to know that he loves you and that he has paid a terrible price to purchase your salvation. And so if you're here tonight and you sense that God is speaking to you through this passage, I'd encourage you to turn to him 
and to receive him through faith. Lord, I'm thankful that you showed us what love is. Not that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent your son to lay down his life for us. And um, all of this just boils down to that singular event that happened over 2,000 years ago that really demonstrates the kind of God you are, one who is perfectly just, but one who's also perfectly loving. And um, we thank you that you explain that to us with lots of clarity. I pray, Lord, for those of us who, you know, might be right on the verge of um, turning to you in humility. I pray that we would have courage and that we would receive the forgiveness that you freely give through Jesus Christ. pray that in his name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.